Hi, welcome to Trash Talk. This is episode 12. I am your host, Recycle Michael, and we got a great guest uh, to share with you today. Um, it's been a little while since we did our last podcast. Things have gotten really busy in the Wastebusters world with the return to special events and uh, kind of a reopening going on with um, you know the improvement in the situation with the pandemic. So um, it's been a little while, but we're happy to uh, be back and recording episodes again. We have a great guest today, uh, Stephanie Miller, the former director of climate business at the World Bank Group and uh, the author of a new book called Zero Waste Living, the 80-20 Way. So welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be with you. Yeah, so um, I had the pleasure of, of reading this book, and uh, it, was, it was great. There were so many good tips in there for people that uh, you know, want to improve their impact on the planet and, and kind of lighten their footprint. Um, the 80-20 way is, uh, I think, a really powerful kind of way of thinking about this stuff because going 100% zero waste is is kind of daunting, right? So, well, Im- impossible and daunting. <laughs> daunting to even try and impossible to actually achieve, at least in, in our society. Right. Even those most hardcore zero wasters still end up with like a jar of, of yes. trash that's, that's unavoidable at the minimum. Yes, that mason jar of trash. Yep. <laughs> and I'm I'm kind of, you know, I, I consider myself living a zero waste lifestyle because I divert so much of other people's trash. I kind of look at it as a balance sheet, right? Where I have some trash, but I recycle most of my own trash compost and, and then divert so much of other people's uh yeah. stuff so i figure if i look at it like a balance sheet i'm in the black yeah you're doing great i think oh and thank you great great business you're in i'm i'm really impressed oh well, i appreciate it yeah it's um you know i feel like it's helpful in, in changing culture that's really what our objective is is, is pushing uh, society toward a more zero waste paradigm and doing special events and, and supporting businesses, doing waste characterization, all of those things really help um, acculturate people to zero waste and give us the kind of data and metrics that we need to, um, you know, make progress and, and measure that progress, right? Yeah, I mean, data, metrics and options. I mean, I think your business is basically giving an alternative to uh, to the way events are, are done in, in our culture. And uh, if people can't see an alternative, then they go with what they've always gone with. And so I think having that alternative out there is so important. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's been a tough sell with the Sudbusters program recently to implement reusable dishes at events. I think people still are a little uh, germaphobic. So that's that's been a tough sell. We did get a half million, almost half million dollar grant from Cal Recycle, um, paid for with the cap and trade proceeds, and uh, it's the first of its kind. So that's exciting, but uh, it's keeping us alive. Meanwhile, while we look for customers willing to kind of make that shift to a, a new paradigm and in, in that post-pandemic uh, yeah. world. Yeah, yeah. I think there are a lot of people spooked uh, incorrectly. So I think, uh, by the idea of, uh, you know, is it safe to touch 
something that's reusable. And we know, of course, now, and the science is out there, and 150 or so scientists came out and said, uh, you're, you're really fine either way with reusables or non-reusables. The important thing is hygiene, right? Uh, either way, you're going to touch it. Someone else is going to touch it. Wash your hands. But uh, yeah, I think that I think there is a lot of um, there was a lot of spook uh, spookiness that was part of the early days of the pandemic. And I think it's been hard for a lot of people to come out of that. Right. Yeah. There's that perception that surface contact might be a risk, but it turns out it's not. It's all exactly. airborne. Yeah. 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 So, you know, that's just something that we're struggling with. Hopefully some people will, uh, you know, follow the science and, and see the, the new paradigm and, and sign up. But Meanwhile, uh, you know, we're doing zero waste events, doing the compost and recycling thing, getting people to use the right products and making it really easy. Uh, so, you know, even if we're not able to get over 90% diversion that way, it's still an A, right? Yeah. I 90% give it, still an A. I'd give you an A plus. <laughs> oh, no, that occasionally yeah, we get there, you know, uh, yeah. with Sudbusters and the reusables, then I, I feel like then, you know, it might deserve the A plus if you're. If you're actually eliminating the single-use disposables from your events and and, and lifestyle, but yes. A is still pretty good, right? Like it's still a passing grade. And if we all were, were working at A's, then we'd be in great shape. Even but, if we were you know, all the working at B's, thing, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, the eighty yes. twenty thing is more of like a B uh, kind of goal, right? Or tell me more yeah. about this eighty twenty goal. Yeah, so 80-20, I just, I borrowed this concept from business economics, you know, this Pareto principle is called the idea that not all actions are equal, that if you focus on the 20% most impactful things, you can kind of get 80% of the way there. So we used to say in my business, when I was at the World Bank Group, uh, you know, let's focus on the uh, 20% of our, uh, 80% of our business comes from 20% of our clients. So let's really put the focus there. It's that notion of it's not exact 80, exact 20, but the idea that not everything is equal. So let's, let's put our energy where we can have the most impact. And so, yeah, I wouldn't, I, I, you could say it's aiming for more like a B plus instead of an A. Uh, but I, I actually think we end up with an F, um, many of us, if we are focused on that 100%, if we're focused on perfection, um, I think we, we sometimes get paralyzed. And I'm speaking from personal experience. I was leading climate change for my institution and would come home, you know, I was doing all the right things. I was getting probably, I would hope, A's in terms of my influence with government and private sector and getting them on a more sustainable path. But I'd come home every night and I would, you know, sort of throw my hands, feel like I was too busy. I knew what some of the right things were to do, but I didn't know what all the right things were to do. And I always thought, well, if I had more time, I would get it right. I would do more things that were eliminating um, disposables. Uh, I would compost. Uh, I would become more of a vegetarian. You know, I would do things that were good for the planet. And I didn't feel like I had time. And so the end, I was flying all over the place for my job. So we know how big uh, and how carbon intensive flying is. And you sort of, at a, at, a, at a certain point, you say, well, I can't control these things. So how, you know, how much difference does it make if I control these other things that actually were in my control? So I think we need to avoid people feeling like they're getting an F 
when they want to make an effort. And that's what 80-20 is for me. It's about getting comfortable with doing the things that can fit into our lives uh, and make a difference. And there are just a few of them that are not that hard, that <clears throat> I always say that meet at this intersection of ease and impact. And if we focus on those, we really can make a profound difference in our own, with our own personal carbon and waste footprints. <clears throat> and then, of course, we can talk about influence and how moving just beyond yourself can, can make such a big difference. So anyway, 80-20, right. so, so, that's what I mean by 80-20. Right. So you're talking about like low-hanging fruit that's easy to um, achieve in your personal life and, and it's not going to be such a major inconvenience. Um, you know, as opposed yes. to some of those small changes that you can make that are maybe yeah, less convenient, I'm, but a lot easier to, to make. Yeah, I'm talking about the low hanging fruit if the low hanging fruit actually makes a difference. Uh, and, um, you know, if we, if we just did the low hanging fruit, that might not be enough. But uh, I think if we uh, or that we would, might be spending a lot of time doing really super easy things that won't make that much of a difference. So I think it's about finding the match of a really pretty easy without major lifestyle changes. But also, you know, if you're going to put a little bit of effort in, this is something that's going to make a difference. Those right. And you outlined in the on. book what those um, most impactful and things to focus on are right. You refer to them as the magic three, and I thought these were really important, and, and found that you know that's that's a lot of what we do is uh, number one, focus on food. Two yep. is purge plastics, particularly single use uh, yep. plastics, and and recycle right. So yeah, those all uh, you know rang that bell of truth for me, and we're like, okay, these are actually good things to focus on. This is what you know Wastebusters focuses on, and where I think individuals can have the most impact as well. Yeah. Like uh, yes. the focus on food thing in particular, like half of what we throw away is organic, potentially compostable. And, and the largest yeah. segment of that is, is food waste. Yeah. It's uh it's shocking. Right. I mean, and I, and I, I say this all the time and I'm not embarrassed to say it, you know, I was leading climate change for my organization, but I was clueless about the impact of food waste. Uh, in landfills. I really was not focused on the fact that one of the biggest contributors, not just by individuals, but by any, any, any group, any um, uh, segment is food waste. Methane, food, you know this very well, but food waste in landfills uh, produces methane as it's decomposing, which is one of the most potent greenhouse gases. And Landfills are one of, you know, we've got the oil and gas industry and we've got the agricultural sector and we've got landfills. Those are the three major causes of uh, methane emissions. And methane, I just saw this data, is responsible for about half of the climate change temperature rise we've seen so far. So if we're looking at about one degree Celsius change since pre-industrial times, which is what the data has just come up with, about half of that is from methane emissions. So, you know, putting the science aside, then then here's the really fascinating thing that I, again, was not aware of three years ago. 
of all of the segments that contribute to climate change, it is how in this country, the U.S. It is household uh, uh, level waste that is the biggest contributor. Thirty-seven percent is produced of food waste is produced at the household level. Right. So that's a terrible figure on the one hand, and on the other hand, this is when when we talk about where do you focus so that you know you're having impact. This is it, right? I mean, we can talk about some of the other areas on food and on plastics and on recycling, but you, we, we, we should take huge comfort in knowing that if we drastically reduce our food waste, we are making a very big difference. So that I think is a positive message, right? It's not a right. It's it's so much easier. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, and it, and also methane doesn't last very long in the um, atmosphere. It's about 15 years. So yeah, um, yeah. I actually used to take issue with a lot of those calculations where they say, "Oh, methane is is you know 12 times as potent as uh, CO2," and and that's when they're normalizing it over a hundred year term. And it's really yeah, otherwise it's probably 80, 100 times. 80 times. 80 years. It's, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's about I've seen about 86 times more potent than greenhouse gas over a 20 year period, which is right. more a better comparison. Over 15. Yeah. Maybe yeah. like a so, hundred times. So um, it's really a big yeah, impact. Exactly. And, and I th- feel like it's an easier switch to get people to make like, yeah, getting an electric car is great. I have one, but um, you know, they're hard to get right now. They're expensive and uh, it's a major yeah. lifestyle change that um, I think is a tougher sell and it's going to take longer for us to really build out that infrastructure and enough cars to get everybody to make that switch or, uh, you know, even getting people on public transit, you know, that's, it's, it's a tougher shift to make than just putting your food waste in the green bin. So yes, if you have a green bin, right. So you have a green bin where you are. I'm in California. I know. So you're in the state where if we could just import all of your regulations to the rest of the U.S., we'd be in really good shape. But we don't have green bins in Washington, D.C. Uh, Arlington County just introduced green bins. I mean, they've had green bins for lawn waste, but not for food waste. In September, they just introduced it for food waste. I'm very excited to see how that goes. And I'm going to be lobbying, you know, my officials on why can't we get what Arlington has, which is right across the river. Um you know, so we, but the, the, the cool thing about DC, we're not California, but we have other options, which a lot of other communities do not have in the US. If we can't, um, we don't have, we do not have uh, residential pickup programs uh, like your green bin program, but we do have free drop off programs uh, in every ward. There are eight wards in DC. Every ward in DC has at least one drop-off program provided by the city. And then there are, every time I post about this, some other composting company tells me, don't forget about us. There are at least five, maybe six, and by the time I say this, maybe seven um, local companies that provide, not free, but uh, they will once a week come pick up at your doorstep your compostable scraps uh, for about $8 a week. So if you realize how important this is and you care about it and you can afford it, that's what I used to do is I used to pay $8 a week and then I got my own compost bin. So that's, that's great. That's satisfying on a whole different level, but it's the result is the same. You're, you're diverting that those compostable scraps 
uh, from the landfill. And that's, that's huge. Right. Um, and even if you don't have access to that green bin yet, um, uh, you know, source reduction, that, that's an even more powerful, uh, solution Much better. There. and, and yeah. I really like some of your tips around that, like doing the three minute fridge review to make sure that you didn't, um, uh, leave some leftovers in the back of the fridge that, that were, you know, yeah. going to go bad if you didn't need them. And, and yeah. So, that, so that, tell me more about that. Yeah. So here's, so here's where we get to the crux of exactly what you said, reducing at the source is the better way to go. Uh, that, that means, first of all, you know, if we were all perfect, we would only shop and bring home what we're actually going to eat. But we all know, even if we're careful, so by all means, we should all shop with a list, right? We should, that if anyone out there doesn't shop with a list, that's the easy fix. Then you shop with a list and you still end up with food that um, I think the bigger the household, the more confusing the innards of your refrigerator are. And so, okay. You can't buy a Tesla car today, or maybe not even next year, but if you spend two minutes a day looking at your fridge and doing this fridge review, which is really simple, it's, it's all, and if you do it every day, it really is simple. It's, it's just about pulling forward and making visible the things in your fridge that need to be eaten probably in the next day or two. So I, I, I would say take it out of the dead zones of the fridge, open it up. If you can put everything leftovers in transparent containers, because we all have gone through that terrible moment when we lift up the lid to something that we couldn't see the insides of it, it looks awful and we know we need to throw it away. Transparency helps a lot. And then I, I use do glass this jars. thing. Yeah, I use glass jars, I use Pyrex, uh, whatever I can do to get it into something visible, glass, and uh, ideally glass. Uh, and then I actually have a shelf I label eat me first so that even though I'm doing the fridge review, no one else in the house is doing it. Anyone else who opens the fridge sees that shelf and they know that's where they should go first if they want to eat something. Um, so those leftovers that, you know, Thanksgiving, here we are after Thanksgiving. By now, hopefully people have frozen whatever remains of leftovers that they didn't eat. From Thanksgiving, right? Because it's now we're, you know, how many days out? Uh, well, we're coming up on a week. Well, we're five days out. So it's, you know, freeze it today if you haven't done it already so that you can enjoy it later. Yeah, I actually, um, I think I already made my way through all of the leftovers except for some <laughs> leftover uh, pie filling. And ah. I was actually making a pie last night with that leftover filling. And um had been collecting acorns and soaking them. So oh. I made a nice uh, acorn crusted pumpkin pie. Oh, that sounds beautiful. Yeah. I, I really love uh, local foods and, and keeping it local. Um, try to eat within a food shed of 250 miles as much as possible. Yes. But, uh, you know, acorns are just amazing because you don't need agriculture. You know, they just, you know, fall off the tree. And this, this year was a mast year. So all of the acorns were in abundance. And yeah. Yes, yeah, I, that a was little labor here. intensive. Yeah, it's like con uh, continent wide. They all yeah, do it it's been incredible. Yeah, yeah. We we actually uh, for the first time ever this year, we thought we were being torpedoed by the acorns that were falling from the oak tree, and we we had a few incidents of the <laughs> the acorns falling in wine glasses and 
place. And yeah, it was quite a storm, an acorn storm. Right. <laughs> Yeah, people complain cool. about how much processing it takes. Well, you don't have to f- do the farming, though. You know. Yeah. You just yeah. Uh, wow. Good for you. So yeah, uh, the fridge is looking pretty well, uh, like on track. So that's good. But you had some other great. good tips that um, I thought were valuable too, like prepping veggies as soon as you unpack them. That, that wasn't something that occurred to me before. Yeah, I find I I, I know. I have this concept I call my future self, which I thought I invented, but then I realized a lot of other people talk about their future self. You know, it's whenever you do yourself a favor now that you'll appreciate like tonight or tomorrow or in a week. Yeah. So that's how I think about when I come home from the farmer's market or from the grocery store, if I don't do something with the vegetables right away, chances are there's a much better chance that they're going to go to waste. Uh, so if I, for example, with carrots, I will try to go ahead and peel them and put them in a container with water right away. They last for weeks that way. I mean, that's incredible how long they last. If I'm too, if I'm too rushed to do that, then I'll at least put the carrots in water, even if I don't peel them. But if I peel them, I'm so happy, you know, the next day when I want to use my carrots for the salad. Same thing with lettuce. Uh, I had a friend who said, but Stephanie, doesn't it, if you don't keep the lettuce in plastic, don't you find it wilts more quickly? And I don't actually find that it wilts more quickly as long as I do my routine, which is I wash it, I, I dry it, not, you know, completely dry, a little bit moist, and then I wrap it in a, in a cotton kitchen towel. And that in my produce drawer of the fridge, also uh, lasts much longer than than I would ever have thought. I mean, not maybe not a week, but more than three days. So that's worked. Uh, whatever you can do, I think whatever you can do to help yourself not be not not cave into the laziness or the tiredness that we all feel at the end of the day when we need to cook a meal and there's just too much. You don't know where to start. So I think a lot of food waste happens because we're tired, which is yeah. understandable. No, definitely. And and I I love the concept of, you know, thinking your past self. I do that a lot. I, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of fun. It is. And then uh, the other thing I uh, thought about when you were saying that is the, um, so besides prepping everything and, and getting it all ready in advance, um, you had mentioned something about uh, an app in the book called Supercook and just using technology yeah. to come up with recipes to, um, you know, use what you have on hand. Yes, yes. I think uh, the, the so the, I think there are two problems that at least I'll speak for myself that I used to have. I would buy. I like to cook, so I would try a new recipe, buy some ingredients I'd never used before, and then of course you don't need all of them for that particular recipe. So what do you do with the rest? So those sorts of apps uh, are. I mean, everything is online now, so there's almost always a a use for something. I think the maybe the even more important than that is the freezer, and I. I I have been shocked by how many things can be successfully 
frozen and then defrosted and enjoyed later. And it, and this was a big eye opener for me. I had never frozen dairy before. And then when the pandemic hit, you know, I got a few containers of butter and I, I froze some of them. Dairy freezes cream, you know, as well in the dairy category, milk, um, tomato paste. You open up that tomato paste jar. You just use a tablespoon for whatever you're cooking. And then you've got that rest of the jar, which is probably another five or six tablespoons. I freeze those now. I put them in little ice cream, ice cream, uh, ice cube, ice cube trays, trays yeah. and then throw them in a baggie in the, in the freezer. You know, that, right. so it I'll saves do that money. with pesto. Oh gosh. I have so much pesto. That's my thing in the summer. How quickly can I make and freeze pesto? Because that is something there's nobody in this household. I mean, we have a small household, but Nobody that isn't thrilled when I say, I'm going to defrost some of the pesto tonight for dinner. Uh, I mean, then all eyes light up. Oh, we're having pesto with pesto. Yes. So that's a that's a great one to freeze. Soups freeze really well. Almost everything can be frozen. So, Stephanie, have you read a book called Garbology? Are you familiar with that book? No, I'm It's not. an excellent read. And uh, okay. the author explores kind of the science of garbage. I guess there was a professor at Stanford and he was an anthropology professor and his students uh, proposed, they were like, Hey, you know, we're always analyzing these trash pits of um, kind of ancient societies or, um, you know, tribes or more, more like less developed mm. people. Why don't we look at the trash of contemporary Americans and do some, you know, anthropological sociological analysis on cool on like current people and so they went out and surveyed uh households that wanted to participate and asked them all kinds of questions and then they sorted their trash and they found out a lot of people are um kind of living a lie you know <laughs> and, and and this really relates to food waste people think they eat really healthy but it turns right. out they're buying healthy food like vegetables but wasting it so yeah. maybe their diets aren't as healthy as they assume. Uh, yeah. Another thing was, so um, interesting. Yeah. you know, couples uh, in particular, if one was um, a heavy drinker and the other one was, was not a drinker, the, the drinker would, would uh, under report how much alcohol they consume while their partner <laughs> would be very spot on and yeah. accurate. But, That's so uh, interesting. Yeah. You know, well, the I trash mean, I doesn't think lie. No, the trash doesn't lie. But I think, you know, in fairness to those for that first group, I, I think what's really hard is that produce goes bad quickly, right? So we, 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 we have good intentions. I get that. We shop for greens and fruits and, and then, you know, we think we're going to eat it in the next few days and maybe we get busy. We don't have another chance after those few days lapse because the produce is, if we haven't done something with it, uh, thrown it into an omelet or put it in the freezer for the stuff that does freeze, then um, we have a problem that's going to end up in our trash. So I think it's, I would guess it's a combination of the good intentions gone bad because the produce doesn't give people the chance to follow through on some of their good intentions. And that's what, you know, what you find with the refed, uh, you know, the, uh, the reports on food waste. 
um, you know, the NGO refed that comes out with their, their reports on where food waste comes from. I mean, produce is the overwhelming problems in, oh, yeah. in, in the garbage. So, yeah. I've seen that plenty doing waste audits and waste characterization studies. We even have a team going around right now, um, visiting and interviewing, uh, you know, tier one generators that are, are producing a lot of this food waste and making sure that they're going to be compliant with the new California law, SB 1383, yeah. that mandates um, donation of, of that food waste. Yeah. Instead of composting yeah. it, it's um, required to get donated. And so there's, there's a big opportunity now for new companies that can uh, handle the logistics of making sure this um, edible food gets to uh, hungry people. I'm seeing apps now showing up, or they'll uh, kind of like an Uber for your food waste. Yes. Uh, so there, there's some you know, good ones. Yeah. There's some yeah. progress happening here. Yeah. SB 1383 really is. It, it is in, in a lot of ways. Although, you know, these requirements that we have to compost all our organics in California, while admirable and, and potentially achievable, we don't have the compost facilities to accommodate this much food waste. Ooh, and I've talked about that in some previous uh, um, podcasts, like the city and county of L.A. are um, over the next 15 years going to build out capacity to compost about half of the food waste that they're generating. But there's still like 250 tons a day that, that there's no plan for and no uh, facility capacity. I think wow. in California, we're, we're going to need over 150 new compost facilities just to handle the amount of uh, food waste we currently have. Hopefully, a lot of that is reduced with source reduction, right? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's produce. Sometimes it, it just doesn't, uh, you know, have a second um, life in it yes, other than composting yeah. or animal feed. So, yeah, that's an interesting problem to have. We don't we don't have that yet in this region, but uh, that's that's very interesting. Uh, and I, I hope I hope California can solve that infrastructure problem. Uh, well, nationwide, quickly. I think it's it's one of the biggest business opportunities there is. You know, yes, building yeah, out yeah. compost facilities and and that infrastructure. You know, yeah, you get paid on both ends. You get paid to take the material. You get paid to sell it. Yeah, there's it's good there's stuff. No, no shortage of it, and and that compost can go to all kinds of beneficial uses. It'll offset the need for um, nitrate fertilizers, which have a huge methane impact as well. Yep. Like yep. when you make yep. those fertilizers, there's a lot of methane associated with that. So we can, uh, it's kind of like, I don't know, it's, um, it's, it's like triple benefit there, right? Yes. Uh, for yeah, the climate. Yeah. No, it's a, and, it's, and a great I think economic you're right. a good A good business. Yep. Yeah. So maybe the World Bank can get investing in, in compost. Uh, well, I'm not there anymore, but uh, right. yes, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm actually speaking to uh, the World Bank this week and um, I, I will tell them I'll find out what they're doing. <laughs> cool. Yeah, we're also, um, you know, I have been working on uh, trying to influence the carbon credit market to allow for uh, applying compost to generate carbon credits because there is a sequestration potential you get as well. Not only do you yes. uh, offset right. the methane generated from the petroleum fertilizers, but the plants are growing more vigorously, sucking CO2 out of the air. Yes. So yes. It, there's there's a lot of good potential. A lot there. of win-win-wins. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, wow. Um, we're, we're talking about the magic three. And so far, we've spent a lot of time on food waste. I think it's the most important but let's let's move on and, and talk about uh, purging plastics. You don't want to talk about plant-based diet? 
Oh, actually, um, let's do that. Sure. Okay, really quick. I'm all about. So I'm all about because plastics is super important. But I'm uh, a veg. So. so I am not a vegetarian. I am not a vegan. Uh, I was raised, you know, meat on the table is the full meal, and so uh, I have been trying to reform my ways. I've been trying to go as vegetarian as I can. I have goal, my, the, dinner is the real issue for me. Um, so I have a goal of four vegetarian dinners a week in this household. That's a real challenge. Um, I get pushback, uh, but I've made a resolution this week. Nobody knows about it yet in this household that I'm going to try to move it to five uh, vegetarian dinners a week. But what I, the, what I, so I've seen a statistic that there is something like 5% of the population is vegetarian. I don't know if that's a statistic you've seen. Uh, should be more. Depends I wish, where you I are. I, I've seen yeah. numbers around there. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what I write about in the book is about the idea of thinking about the carbon intensity of food. And this is so much in line with the 80-20 thinking, right? If we're not trying, if we're not, if we're not willing or if we're not willing to go 100% vegan or vegetarian, then how do we reduce our impact anyway? And I found it very interesting to understand the carbon intensity of different foods. And even within the meat proteins, the difference between beef and chicken uh, is huge. It's, you know, one kilogram of beef is responsible for 60 kilograms of carbon emissions, but one kilogram of chicken is only responsible for six kilograms of carbon emissions. So that's a choice that if someone is not willing to have a vegetarian meal tonight, they could have chicken and fish, wild caught salmon would be half as much again as chicken. So I think for the let's call it 95% or whatever percent it is of non-vegetarians, I think it's really important that they don't feel left out of this and that they feel that they can start to move in the right direction uh, toward a more plant-based diet and get rid of the all or nothing if the all or nothing is not helpful and really focus on, well, what can I have tonight that's less carbon intensive? So I have a little chart in the book where I lay out the carbon intensity of different food groups. And um, it, I, I, as I said, I find it revealing and helpful for me. Uh, so. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. On, and there's also the water footprint, right? Uh, there's a great website, the waterfootprint.org. And you can see yeah. how uh, beef has a much larger um, embodied water content yes. and yes. water use because you know you need to grow all of these i mean unfortunately we feed a lot of cows corn and grains that they're not really uh, ideally set up for but we're using yeah. uh, irrigation water to do that and then yeah oh all the resources yeah water water is another big one absolutely it's not just about the carbon <clears throat> story but right the carbon story is the one where uh, you know, we, a lot we, of us, we, yeah. we're focusing, focusing on right now, but absolutely. I mean, if you break it down and there's some great data on this, as you said, um, I, I created a simplified version of a very complex, uh, graph put out by the world in data, uh, that, uh, that, that breaks it down along the lines of what you're talking about. When does, 
when do these resources get wasted? At what point in the process? Which right. resources? So uh, it's it's important for us to to be aware, uh, at least in the broadest sense of the resources that go into some of these um, producing some of these foods. And and like I mentioned earlier, thinking about the food shed concept, I think is really important because uh, depending on what store I'm in, the eggs you know, they can come from all the way across the country. And I live in a place with abundant uh, poultry farms. And I'm like, why are they cheaper if they're from like all the way across the country? So yeah, yeah. that's, that's another thing to keep in mind. And absolutely. Another thing to keep in mind and also another thing to ask about. So if you go to your market, uh, it's just pretty simple thing to do. Ask, where does this come from? Uh, strawberries not in season where you are. Well, in California, strawberries are probably always in season, but <laughs> I'm, I'm no, excited. no, but, but, yeah, but it is a very tiny window in, in this region. So if you see strawberries in, you know, April, where, where are they coming from? It's a fair question to ask. Uh, and chances are they're not local. Completely. So, I'm, I'm all about the seasonal diet and farmer's markets are a good way to get more in touch with that. But yeah. I was supremely lucky to live in the village homes in Davis for a time. Oh. And that was a community that was designed to uh, incorporate edible landscaping. Uh, every like 10th house instead was a orchard and the HOA like paid wow. for management of those things. Yeah. There's garden belts that snake through all the houses faced walking paths and the back of the house had, had the street. So yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah. And it really put me in touch with seasonality of, of like what's ripe when and, yes. um, and I, how much I better admit, it tastes when it's fresh and local. Oh yeah. It's incredible. And I, I, I will completely again, confess that I was not in tune with seasonality. Uh, I have a very good friend of mine who tells me all the time, Stephanie, no, you can't have uh, an avocado dish at this time of year or whatever. And I now, and I think you're absolutely right, a kind of a cheat sheet in a way to what is seasonal is to go to your local farmer's market because they're not going to have stuff that isn't what they can grow right then. Uh, so uh, I, I have become much more attuned to it. And it's actually kind of fun to wait for strawberry season and wait for um you know, artichoke season. Right. And cherry season is yeah. extremely short. You know, it's only a couple of weeks. And, you know, yeah. if, if you're getting them throughout the state of California, it can be stretched out into a month or so. But yeah, uh, if, if they're really fresh and local, then you, you got maybe two weeks if those things are ripe. And, yeah. Man, yeah. Enjoy definitely. it while you can. Yeah. <laughs> it's, not too much, though. You know, things can loosen up and, and it's, uh, you know, if you overindulge, but they're, they're so much better when they're fresh and ripe. Yeah, and and when you think about it, so many foods that we eat and that that are in the grocery stores um, year round are they're coming from the opposite hemisphere, right? Yeah. If you're getting tomatoes yeah. in the winter, most yeah. likely they're from like Chile or something, and it's it's like six thousand, yeah. twelve thousand miles. It, it, yep. Yeah. So the um, the food shed concept, I think, is is great. Yeah, the to food shed concept them. is kind of really like a watershed. Important, yeah. Even fiber shed too. That's a thing that we have now, and, and getting, huh. um, you know, sweaters that were made with local. Oh yes. Uh, wool, and they even have a uh, program now to uh, uh, like certify regenerative farms that are using uh-huh. compost and and helping um, build back that soil. So you can get right. carbon negative articles of clothing 
I think Patagonia had a a carbon negative beanie that was their top selling item a a few years back. So yeah, keeping it local, keeping it fresh, uh, not wasting uh, food. And, and, you know, you have some great tips in the book. Uh, I recommend it to everyone to read. And it was also part of a series of um, uh, books on on how to like come back from this pandemic and, and kind of flip reality into a more sustainable yeah, there's some great books in the series. Uh, the series is called Resetting Our Future, and it's exactly what you said. Plant some ideas now that could take hold after the pandemic. Um, I have some fellow authors who just, they're not all climate books, but there are a good half dozen maybe that are climate related. And uh, fellow authors of mine just came out with a great book, very timely, called Cut Super Pollutants now cut super climate pollutants now and methane of course is one of the ones that is talked about um and how well anyway that's a, a different podcast but uh it's uh, uh important that we both look at the long-term game and race on cutting carbon dioxide emissions but also the short-term uh possibility of cutting methane and the other super climate pollutants so I recommend that book as well. So you want to talk about plastic? Well, actually, uh, before we move on, there's one more thing about food. And um, this is related to, congratulations again, uh, your upcoming wedding. And, uh, you know, events are a great way to, um, you know, plan for um, food waste diversion, right? Because you never want to be in a situation where there's not enough food at a wedding or a special event. So caterers tend to over plan. But when you're booking caterers, uh, that's one thing that you can ask them is like, what is your plan for excess food? You know, are yes. you going to back all the compost? Do you have um, a team that can accept donations? And, and what's the plan for this? Yes. Uh, and uh, today we had, this is why this came up with us. Today we had our tasting uh, at the caterers. And um, so we're, I'm going to have a separate session with the owner of the company, I'm going to interview her about some of the practices because they they claim to be a green wedding caterer. So, uh, yeah, I I I would love to. So that is great. I will ask that question uh, about. I know they're going to try really hard to save us money to get it, you know, as close to right as possible on the portions. But it's buffet, so you always have to have a bit more. Uh, so besides sending a meal home with my then new husband and me, uh, you know, I, I think it's a great question. What will they do with the rest of the, the food? So we had a wedding recently where they um, had little like takeout boxes and, and gave the leftovers to their guests. Uh, oh, there was still that. there was still a fair amount of food waste and that yeah. is unavoidable. I think there was a lot of fish involved. So that's that's yeah. tougher to do. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So those those are some uh, some quick tips for reducing food waste, both at home and uh, at your special at events. events. And, yeah. Yeah. The specialist of events. So, <laughs> all right. Let's talk plastic. Uh, I'm not a fan of the single use plastics. I try to avoid them. Uh, you have some good tips in the book for like bringing your own cutlery. I think that's an easy one. Uh, yeah. And then what else did you do? You have. uh... Well, yeah, I mean, I think first, I I think probably most of your listeners already know, but the the plastics problem is is not just the oceans ecosystems issue, right? It's also the health 
our own health, which is not yet studied, uh, and the health of the workers at the plastic, the, the facilities that make the plastic. It's a very carbon intensive process, and it's also very polluting. And the, the communities that live in these areas where these uh, toxic pollutants are emitted. Uh, and then there was just a study, I think last month, uh, from Beyond Plastics that showed that plastics is growing at such a huge rate that it is going to overtake coal in this decade in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. So it's also, you know, anyway, it's all the stuff we already have in our heads about why plastic is kind of a problem and all the stuff that maybe people are just becoming aware of now. So the tips I have, you know, plastics to me, unlike food, where there's some just some big ideas to think about and then do something about, plastics is so ubiquitous now. It has become such an important part of our convenience culture that to me, the biggest thing to do around plastics is to open your eyes. How do you open your eyes to all the plastic in, in our lives? And what worked for me, and I always recommend it, is if you want to start, pick something. Think of something you buy in single-use plastic every week or every day even. For me, it was the plastic water bottle. I used to go through one or two plastic water bottles at my work. Again, embarrassed to say it now, but that's what I was doing. True confessions. Uh, I made it find what that thing is that you buy all the time. Find a replacement for it. There's almost always a sustainable packaging replacement. I got a cool, swell, you know, stainless steel bottle and make a commitment to, in my case, never buy water in plastic bottles again uh, and stick to or at least eighty percent of the time. Or well, yeah. It, in fact, it's it's pretty much a hundred percent. I mean, if I were to travel to a region of the world or maybe of the country that has really poor quality water, I probably would break my own rule. But it's pretty easy to keep this rule because I've let myself go thirsty when I have forgotten my bottle and it reminds me never to forget it. So I'm pretty good and I know how to deal with this in airports now. It's not that hard. You just empty it before you go through security and then fill it up again when you're out of security. So I have pictures of me all over the country with my with my reusable bottle. But my point is whether it's, the, there you go, you've got your reusable coffee mug or well, it's actually, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's for cold drinks, but it's it's very large and it's got the steel straw and the lid. And this is just what I use around the house or in the car because I don't want to yeah. unscrew the lid of the water bottle every time. So yeah. I find this uh, gets me drinking a lot more water and, yeah. and it's just a lot easier. That's great. Yeah. So I think once you once you choose something and you make some kind of commitment around it for yourself, then you start to become more aware it opened my eyes and then you start to see, well, what else, what else? For me, it was a bit of a game. What else could I cut out of my life that I'm buying all the time in plastic? And some things are easier to switch out than others. I, I just, it's not equal, right? So your reusable mug, um, if you take it to Starbucks or wherever you go for coffee, will they put your coffee in that mug of yours? These days, it's a crapshoot. Uh, depends yeah. on the barista and their COVID tolerance and, and yeah. uh, information. But usually, so, 
if you're a heavy drinker and you're a heavy coffee drinker outside the house, I drink my coffee in the morning in the house. But if you have yours in a coffee shop, you probably want to carry around your just like you have that that mug. And then there's a chance that someone will help you. Uh, the barista will help you. And there's a chance they won't. But at least you'll be ready for it. Right. Um, there's some really easy switches. Uh, cloth, bags. Napkins, right. Ba- oh, yeah. Produce bags. Uh, there's shopping bags, shopping bags. Yeah. I, I was already, even before I went zero wasty, I was already bringing my own grocery bags to the store. There's that five, five cent tax or, you know, there are little incentives to do it. And it's easy to, if you have a car, easy to keep them in the trunk of your car. We don't ever forget those. But the, the thing I started doing is also the produce bags. So you could just shop with no bags and just put it in your cart. I have some friends who are disgusted by that. I don't think there's anything disgusting about it, but you know, to each her own or his own. Um, so I have a uh, reusable cotton produce bags that I, some of which I actually made. I'm not very handy and crafty, but these are pretty easy to make. Uh, I bought a few at the beginning of this uh, journey. So I always have a bunch of those in that I put inside the grocery bag. So I never forget them when I walk into the store. Uh, yeah. And I think you mentioned in your book that you had contacted the local MRFs or material recovery facilities, recycling centers about their challenges. And they said consistently plastic bags are 90% of the problem that's messing yep. up recycling. Absolutely. Uh, they, they are the biggest part of the problem. And I actually just had a more recent conversation, even since I wrote the book, with someone at the, uh, not at a MRF, but at the DC recycling um, office. And she explained to me, there's a tipping process. So they take the truck and tip it onto a platform. And there's a supervisor there that looks at the entire tipped truck. And if more than a certain amount of that truck is filled with recyclables in plastic bags, they will take the entire platform and put it in the landfill instead of bringing it into the facility. So it's not just the people that are putting their recyclables in plastic bags. It's affecting everybody else from that truck if there are too many of them. If there are just a few of them, they'll deal with it too many. It's just not worth it for them. Completely. Yeah. It's it's very labor intensive to try to open bags. Some MRFs have bag breakers, many don't. And those plastic bags get wrapped up on equipment. It's a big problem. And I think that's a great point that, you know, people contaminating, um, recycling or compost, same thing with compost. If it's, if there's a lot of plastic in there, they'll dump that whole load and landfill it all because it's not worth it to to clean it up. Yeah. Um, here in San Francisco, uh, we're actually working in a lot of, um, large refuse generators, uh, buildings that that have large uh, dumpsters and and high levels of service. And we're doing that because the city is uh, working with the hauler to implement really strict thresholds on contamination. So the the company's going out and doing audits because sometimes you can't tell uh, on the back of a truck who is responsible for that contamination. But if they go to each generator and see like, oh, you have over 20% contamination in your recycling, bam, we're going to uh, raise your rates and fine you yep. and even force you to have 
a service like ours come uh, fix the problem. So I think it's a great model and uh, hopefully that that kind of thing spreads. That's Uh, great to hear. We're almost out of time here, but I really liked what you had to say about recycling bin audits. So I guess this is is the third of the magic three is recycling, right? Uh, Eliminating plastics and then what you are putting in the recycling, uh, making sure that it's not contaminant. And uh, you have some interesting strategies on on how to to check on that. Yeah, I I think uh, recycling is is not the solution to our waste crisis or climate crisis, but it is a solution. And I think what's fascinating about recycling is that, at least in this country, about half uh, of the population has access to residential recycling. So that means almost all of us that are probably listening to this podcast are touching something every day and making a decision about whether it goes in the recycle bin or not. But the, the, the tip I have there that you're referring to, the recycle bin audit, is really just audit, you know, sounds really serious, but it's just a few days before your, or maybe right before actually, your recycle gets picked, recycle bin gets picked up, putting out a tarp or a towel, uh, or just doing it in your driveway, um, taking the stuff out and printing or taking a look at what the rules are in your jurisdiction. So the idea is, you may be putting things into your recycle bin every week that don't belong there. So the plastic bag we talked about, but there can be other things that are also uh, not cool to put in there that either cause contamination or you just have the wrong notion that it's recyclable when it's not and it, it shouldn't be placed there. So Right. There's so a lot cool. of wish cycling going on. Wish cycling is a big problem. And we've all done it, right? We've all, you know, kind of hovered over the recycle bin. Ah, this feels like the right kind of plastic. I'm sure they'll take it. Uh, so, so the two purposes of the the audit are one, just to make sure you're getting the rules right, you're doing it right. But I think the more exciting part of doing the audit is to start to see if you take apart, um, and I recommend grouping the recycle bin contents into the same groupings that are uh, used at these MRFs, the uh, materials recycling facilities. Essentially, it's glass, metals, paper, and um, plastic. And if you separate into those four, you get a view of what your recycling trash looks like. And Once you do, you take a look, especially at the plastics pile, and see if there is an opportunity there to switch out from plastic to some other either no packaging or more sustainable packaging. And the the one example I'd like to give is water in a plastic bottle versus water in an aluminum can. That plastic water bottle uh, will probably be recycled. Uh, only 9% of plastic actually ever gets recycled, but it'll probably be recycled, but it will only get recycled once. And it, whatever gets turned into may get recycled one or more, one or two more times, but eventually it will exactly. You're nodding your head. It, probably not, but uh, metals and glass are it's down cycles, right? But metals and glass are infinitely recyclable. And that aluminum can will be back on the shelf in 60 days, refilled, you know, melted down, refilled. There's energy in that process too. But 95% of energy is saved when we use non-virgin metal. So there's, that's a 
kind of an easy switch St. Croix. Yeah, pretty much every aluminum can you see in the store is 100% recycled content. That's what they make cans out of. Yeah. So that's an important thing. I I think it just, if if you've got that view of your week's worth of recycling trash, it gives you a sense of where the opportunities are to do better with more sustainable packaging. So it's worth doing once, maybe twice in your life, but it's kind of fun. I like to say, know your discards if you're going to get to zero waste. That's why we do waste characterization studies and and we do um, a lot of them, whether it's, you know, for the state where we do statewide waste characterizations and go to dumps and find out, you know, what's actually being landfilled. We audit businesses recycling what's what's going on there what's the contamination rates is there food waste on on this recycling um you know and sometimes it's 95 categories that we separate stuff into there's a whole show we did with Dieter Eccles talking about waste characterization if you're interested oh I will um, take a look at that yeah you got to know your discards to get to zero waste having a goal of zero is really important so you can measure progress but then you also need to know where you're at and what you're wasting, right? And then you Absolutely. can come up with a plan, like knowing that food and organics is uh, the biggest slice of the pie. So maybe that's what we should focus on now. Uh, yeah. All these single-use plastics those don't really have a, an alternative. So let's let's reduce those. Yeah. So yeah. I used great, to... Great when stuff. I per- yeah, when I first did my uh, recycle audit, I actually put a piece of tape on the inside of the recycle bin to see could I get below that level uh, mm-hmm. the next week, and and I did, and then I lowered the tape even more, and you know it's kind of fun to play a game. It's always good to have goals, whether it's for exercise or diet or going zero waste. Having some goals, you know, just makes it more. Completely. And I actually feel like zero waste isn't the end goal. That's just our intermediate goal. And it's, it's kind of right at the middle of the spectrum, right? So right now we're in this, you know, wasteful, destructive paradigm. Zero waste is kind of neutral. And then beyond that is regenerative. And that's where we need to go, where we need to be, you know, putting more organics on the soils, um, creating more abundance, uh, more bio-based products, um, you know, restoring and, and regenerating yes. what, what it was lost. So I, I think that's the right vision. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, I would love to talk more, but that's all the time we have for today. And no, it's so uh, I will... much fun and oh, great good. to hear your tips for what I should ask the wedding planner as well. <laughs> great. The caterer. I mean, yes, thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Perfect. And um, I will be posting some notes in the show and some links in there, uh, links to the book and series so our listeners can, uh, you know, get even more of these juicy tips. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks. Happy holidays.